0: This is a recording of an intelligent, thoughtful work on one of the richest portions of the Book of Mormon, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship, read by Jeff Lindsay. This is a book review of Terrell Givens' Second Nephi, a brief theological introduction, published in in Provo, Utah, by the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship in 2020. Abstract Terrell Givens' well-written and enjoyable book does much to equip readers of the Book of Mormon with new tools to appreciate the riches of a text often viewed as the most difficult part of the Book of Mormon. Givens helps us recognize Nephi's sorrow over Jerusalem and his passionate hope and joy centered in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He helps us understand the weightier matters that Nephi focuses on to encourage us to accept the covenants of the Lord and to be part of Zion. Readers will better respect 2 Nephi as a vital part of the restoration, with content critically important for our day. Terrell Givens' recent book, 2 Nephi, a brief theological introduction, part of the Neil A. Maxwell Institute's series on the books of the Book of Mormon, exceeded my expectations. Givens, of course, is a popular, skilled, and intelligent writer who has done much to expand readers' appreciation of the Scriptures, In spite of that, I approached this book wondering just how much he could do with the constraint of writing about 2 Nephi, a book many less experienced students of the scriptures feel is dull and difficult to understand, in part because of its emphasis on Isaiah and the paucity of action within its pages, rather unlike 1 Nephi with its dramatic tales of fleeing Jerusalem, obtaining the brass plates, journeying journeying across the Arabian Peninsula, and sailing to the New World. Given surprised me by revealing both the poignancy and the spiritual depth in Second Nephi with fresh perspectives. While Second Nephi, a brief theological introduction, is a short work of 124 pages, it is packed with meaning, meaning and is a book I am pleased to recommend. A useful introduction considers just how deeply Nephi must have been affected by Lehi's prophetic confirmation that Jerusalem had been destroyed and considers Nephi's possible motivation for starting a second volume in his writings. Gibbons then begins with a discussion of the new and very old covenant in chapter 1, reminding us of the background to the grand plan of salvation and the covenant relationship that God invites us to enter into in order to return to Him. Some of this basic knowledge, including knowledge of the premortal existence, was among the plain and precious things, 1 Nephi 13.28, that Nephi, that Nephi foresaw would be lost in our day, but would be restored to those who would hear. Givens then briefly surveys covenant theology from the perspective of modern Protestantism and compares that to the covenant theology in the Book of Mormon and shows some of the helpful additions brought by, by the perspective of the Book of Mormon. Givens notes that the Book of Mormon greatly emphasizes the theme of covenants, using that word far more, 174 times, than the New Testament, 30 times, and sees the covenant-oriented Book of Mormon as a text that would resonate with growing interest in covenant theology among many Christians in Joseph's day. Givens discusses the Book of Mormon's unique combination of New Testament themes and a belief in Christ among Hebrews living, living the law of Moses, followed by, quote, by a, quote, New World John the Baptist figure, Samuel the Lamanite, a descendant of Lehi, unquote, declaring the imminent birth of Christ, followed by the dramatic account of the visit of the resurrected Lord to the New World, where the Savior then established his church and commissioned twelve disciples. Quote, It is as if the Book of Mormon rewrites the Old and New Testament records into a holistic gospel narrative in which Christ is the fulcrum rather than the culmination of Christian history, with both sides of the historic divide equally Christocentric. That struck me, end quote That struck me as a beautiful way to summarize what the Book of Mormon does. Givens emphasizes Nephi's passionate faith in Christ, rejoicing in his future atonement and victory over death, even as he kept the law of Moses long before the coming of the Lord. Givens also notes an important feature of the Book of Mormon, is not just its focus on the house of Israel per se as the beneficiary of the Lord's covenants, but its additional focus on the Gentiles who can join Israel by adoption, a concept not a New Testament innovation, but but known in Nephi's day. The universality of the covenants and blessings of the gospel is an important contribution of the Book of Mormon. In 2 Nephi, Given sees a subtle but important shift in speaking of the future Savior as Christ rather than as the Messiah, as in 1 Nephi. That semantic shift is accompanied by a shift in Nephi's spiritual field of vision as he moves from a focus on the local land of promise of the tiny Nephite people to a broad scope embracing, quote, Jew and Gentile, literal Israel and spiritual Israel alike, end quote. And even a shift that moves from a localized land of promise to, to the more universalized concept of Zion. Through his attention to such subtleties, Gibbons helps bring us closer to the meat of 2nd Nephi and the intent of Nephi and his brother Jacob. This discussion of shifting perspectives in 2nd Nephi makes an elegant segue to the second chapter, They Are Not Cast Off. A passage on the title page of the Book of Mormon speaks to the remnant of the house of Israel and tells them that one purpose of the book is, quote, that they may know the covenants of the Lord, that they are not cast off forever, end quote. The latter phrase always struck me as odd. Why speak of not being cast off forever? Givens helped me better appreciate this. Four times in 1 Nephi, we are warned, warned that the wicked will be cast off. And in First Nephi 17:47, Nephi fears that his wicked brethren might be cast off forever. But in Second Nephi, but Second Nephi introduces another subtle shift. Instead of again raising the threat of being cast off, Jacob hopefully points to the possibility for just the opposite. From Second Nephi 10:20, and now, my beloved brethren, seeing that our merciful God has given us so great knowledge concerning these things, let us remember Him and lay aside our sins, and not hang down our heads, for we are not cast off. Nevertheless, we have been driven out of the land of our inheritance, but we have been led to a better land, for the Lord has made the sea our path, and we are upon an isle of the sea. Though not cast off, much has been lost because of the wickedness of others. Not only have they been driven from their initial land of inheritance and led away from Jerusalem, but Jerusalem itself, the holy city, has been destroyed. Gibbons helps us understand just how terrible the news of Jerusalem's destruction would be for Nephi's people, though it had been prophesied. But in spite of such trauma, God's mercy remains extended and they are not cast off. Givens sees significance in Nephi's response to their second exodus after being driven from the land of Nephi toward another new territory in the wilderness, Second Nephi 5, 7 After this loss of their first New World land of inheritance, which followed abandonment of their original land of inheritance in the Old World, Nephi builds a temple as if it were a marker for their new land of promise, however temporary, and moves forward. The land of promise can be fluid as the Lord leads His people, as with Nephi and Abraham in a in a pattern of guided exile. Givens then applies this concept to the experience of the early Latter Day Saints and their repeated migrations. He also sees the shift in the focus from a particular geographical land of promise for the saints to our more universal concept of Zion. In our day, I would also add that we have had and will likely yet experience a series of guided retreats from the world in various ways on the path to build Zion and the Zion people, wherever we may live. The next chapter also draws upon a phrase from the title page of the Book of Mormon and an important theme of Nephi's writings. Quote, "to the convincing of jew and gentile that jesus is the christ" givens reminds us of the unrelenting emphasis on christ in nephi's writings as in the whole book of mormon he addresses the obvious question about how a little band of hebrews in 600 bc would know of jesus christ often citing overlooked new testament passages such as or, or citing often overlooked new testament passages such as hebrews 4:6 where Paul says the gospel was first preached to the, preached to the children of Israel. See also Acts 3.28 and 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11 And he quotes Daniel Boyerin. Quote, Versions of this narrative, the Son of Man story, the story that is later named Christology, were widespread among the Jews before the advent of Jesus. Jesus entered into a role that existed prior to his birth, and this is why so many Jews were prepared to accept him as the Christ, as the Messiah, Son of Man. Gibbons also cites Shirley Lucas, who argues "Argues that far more than a vague pre-Messianism was present among early Jews. Nephi is absolutely clear that based on the writings of other prophets and continuing revelation in his day, he and his people knew of the coming of Jesus Christ and of his gospel centuries before Christ was born. Indeed, Givens observes that Nephi is able to bear personal witness of Christ and his redemption, Second Nephi one fifteen, as does his brother Jacob in Second Nephi 9-11, and that the Book of Mormon urges us to seek personal revelation on our own to know of the reality of Christ and the truthfulness of his restored gospel. Givens sees these prophetic personal witnesses of Christ as, quote, a motif of incalculable significance in the Book of Mormon. If this sacred record were no more than than inspired fiction, then the testimonies of its mythical figures would be no more than a literary charade. The The power and efficacy of the book and the testimonies it conveys are mutually dependent. It is refreshing to see a respected scholar so keenly aware of the power of the Book of Mormon in our increasingly secular age, Speaking of the painful distance between many, that many Christians feel between quote, "the vanished moments of Christ living breathing bodily reality" end quote, and "the modern world with its scattered relics reminding us of ancient Jerusalem and his ministry," Gibbon's writes, "into this immense historical vacuum strewn only with dusty fragments and well-worn stony paths" The Book of Mormon burst with a remarkable audacious claim, Jesus was not a once-in-eternity incarnation of the divine, flashing like a shooting star into the long night of history; his Palestinian birth and ministry were not the beginning and the end of his human interaction, and the old world and its people are not the only setting in which he lived, in which he loved and healed. The Book of Mormon multiplies the field of Christ's operation and its perseverance across time and place. Givens nicely elucidates Second Nephi's persistent focus on the future, on the future Messiah, Jesus Christ. In the fourth and perhaps most ambitious chapter, More Plain and Precious Things, Givens explores five doctrinal issues raised in Second Nephi. First, the fall as a fortunate occurrence, second, the principle of opposition, third, teachings on atonement, fourth, the centrality of agency, and fifth, the doctrine of Christ. His treatment of the fall might be especially interesting for many readers who may not appreciate just how divergent the Book of Mormon view on the fall is from many other Christian views in our era. Gibbons considers statements by Jonathan Edwards and others but could also have included views from Eastern Orthodox writers and many others. Gibbons recognizes how revolutionary it was to view the fall as necessary for human progress and ultimately joy, a teaching found in 2 Nephi 2.25, Adam fell that men might be and men are that they might have joy and in the book of Moses. Givens ably tackles the five topics of this of this chapter and adds a number of insights on such issues as the importance of choice with consequences for free agency to be meaningful, and the way Christ's atonement allows us to be free, such that we can eternally persist in our choice for joy and righteousness through Christ. Some points in this chapter are rather philosophical and at times did not seem as clear as I would have liked, perhaps due to my inexperience in philosophy and theology. Nevertheless, readers should come away with enhanced appreciation for the richly satisfying intellectual content in Second Nephi. In this volume, as with many books, there are some things I would have liked to see included, but that list could quickly become unreasonably long given the numerous treasures in Nephi's books. Nevertheless, prior scholars have had much to say about Nephi's writing, that writings that could have been profitably noted or incorporated into this volume, including exploration of the way Nephi used large chiasmic structures as part of his organization, the proposed reasons his writings were split into two books, his use of particular motifs, his many ancient poetical tools such as those in the unique gem of Second Nephi 4, Nephi's psalm, his extensive allusions to the Exodus, etc. But for the scope given covers— he has done remarkably well and has given readers a generally approachable and thoughtful book that will add new reasons for respecting the Book of Mormon and new windows into the richness of Nephi's second book. It is beautifully written, interesting. It is a beautifully written, interesting and thoughtful book worth studying carefully, while also offering enjoyable and accessible content that may make, a, may, may make for a pleasant initial quick read when time is short. Congratulations to Terrell Gibbons for this contribution. Uh, Jeffrey Dean Lindsay recently uh, returned to the United States after almost nine years in Shanghai, China. Uh, Jeff has been providing online materials defending the LDS faith for over 20 years, primarily at JeffLindsay.com. His Mormonity blog at Mormonity.blogspot.com has been in operation since 2004. He also wrote weekly for Orson Scott Card's Navu Times at nabrutimes.com from 2012 through 2016 and is currently vice president for the Interpreter Foundation and a co-editor of Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship. Jeff has a PhD in chemical engineering from BYU and as a U.S. patent agent, he's a senior, currently senior advisor for IP Capital Group, assisting clients in creating intellectual property and innovation. And uh, oh, Jeff served a mission in the German-speaking Switzerland Zurich mission. He and his wife Kendra are the parents of four boys and have eleven grandchildren. This has been a, uh, excuse me. This has been a recording of an intelligent, thoughtful work on one of the richest portions of the Book of Mormon, by Jeff Lindsay, read by Jeff Lindsay for Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume Forty-One, Two Thousand and Twenty. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are created and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.